welcome to the Stalk in My podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my four-year-old daughter. Series five of the podcast is dedicated to donor conception. I speak to a range of donor-conceived people as well as experts on donor conception to cover a range of topics on this subject. In today's episode, I speak to 29-year-old Natasha. Natasha was raised by her mum, first in London and then in Scotland, as a solo parent family. Natasha's mum was the first woman in Scotland to use fertility treatment and donor conception to become a solo parent, and Natasha shares their story with me in this episode of the podcast. I've also recorded a webinar with Natasha, all about her experiences. It was one of the webinars that has got the best feedback I have ever had of everything I've ever recorded. The people who joined that webinar said that they learned so much and they felt so heartwarmed by Natasha's story and the information she shared. So I really do encourage you to go and check it out. I will share the link in the show notes. But without further ado, let's get on to today's episode of the podcast. Natasha, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This series I'm recording is all focused on donor conception and I'm so pleased to be able to speak to you today because I think it's really important to hear the voices of donor conceived people to really help the my community, the solo mum community to make best informed decisions. So do you want to just give yourself a little bit of an introduction before we start? Sure, yeah. So my name's Natasha. I'm 29 and I come from a single parent family. I've always known that I was donor conceived since I was like, as far as I can, there wasn't a time that I can remember not not knowing. I always had the kind of the story and the background and I was raised by my mum, first of all in London for five years and then moved up to uh, Scotland where my family is. And um, yeah, that's, and now I live in London permanently. And my mum still lives in Scotland. Perfect. And your mum must have been, I guess, one of the first people to do this because there's not many um, donor-conceived people of your age to solo parents that I know of. Do you know if she was one of the first? She's, she's actually the first woman in Scotland to access IVF as a single woman. That's why I'm actually originally from London and was born in London because she wasn't actually allowed fertility treatment on the NHS in Scotland because she was unmarried so she had you know all these ovary problems and had gone into for multiple operations in her late 20s and was told her likelihood of having a child was very slim and so when she was 27 she thought well if I've got one functioning ovary I'm gonna go for it and she was told that she was you know too young uh, to know her own mind, she was still pretty. She could still find a husband. Like these are all oh like GPs, like literally in letters that she still has written in like 1989, oh imploring her not to have a child at a wedlock. Um, so she ended up moving to you know ignoring that very kind of backward thinking and um, moving to London and uh, trying with private practices to have a kid uh, to get pregnant. And it was still really difficult. She was paying for a lot of cycles that weren't working. The uh, the joke amongst my my nan and papa, my mum's parents, is that I'm the most expensive K 
kitchen because they would keep remortgaging and applying for a remortgage to their house and put down that it was because they were getting their kitchen done up, <laughs> but it was actually to pay for my mum to have more cycles um, in London. And she got into a lot of personal debt as well. But luckily, after four years of trying in London, I was finally, you know, the little pink line on a pregnancy test. And um, we stayed in London for five years after that. And I, there's pictures of me still with the doctors. Um, some, some of them were in, from an Eastbourne clinic some of them were in a London clinic, but I've, there's pictures of me with all these nurses and doctors that helped make me, as my mum would say, when I was wee, that we still have. So, yeah, so my mum's, and then so when we moved back to Scotland when I was five in 97, it was headline news, like my little bob and my big cheesy grin all over these, um, <laughs> these papers being like first, sing, you know, single mum, first Scotland single mum IVF treatment. And so when we moved back to Scotland, that's when we realized that my mom was the, the first woman to access IVF as a single parent in Scotland. Wow. So I think now, considering solo motherhood, you know, you, you still feel like you're leading the way a little bit on it. But that was, uh, you know, your mum has really been at the forefront of it and no one, I guess, to talk to about the decision because no one else had done it. So, wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. My mom, luckily, she's always known her own mind. And once she kind of set her mind on it, that was it. You know, no doctor could, could tell her that, you know, it was a bad idea. She knew that she wanted to be a parent and was, it was kind of hell or mind anyone else who would try to stop her. Amazing. And so presumably then her parents were supportive because you were saying they were helping her fund it. Yeah, I think my, so my Nana was a, a nurse for 50 years so she was very supportive and knew that, you know, my mum's wanting to be a mother. She could completely um, relate to that. I think my papa was a wee bit confused at the beginning just because my mum was this, you know, big feminist who wore dungarees and had all these big career plans. And in his mind, he thought he didn't really think back in, you know, the 80s. He thought, oh, what do you mean you want to be a mum? I thought you were a feminist. Like it doesn't <laughs> compute to him that you could be both. And, um, but he got, he soon got on board and I was his first grandchild and, um, yeah, they've always been supportive and they came down to visit me all the time when I was in London and they were the go-to babysitters as soon as we moved back up the road. So yeah, always been very supportive. Amazing. And can you remember when you were younger, how you felt about it? Like what are your first memories of almost any conversations you might have had with your mum? Yeah, I remember, um, the, so the, she used to read me a book that she made. So she was a social worker in London at the time. And it was, I think, kind of good practice as a social worker to make these kind of storybooks for the children that they helped uh, in foster care. And the idea behind it is that a child should always have a story and be uh, okay about telling their story I think, you know, there's often a lot of shame within secrecy. So it is being honest, being open, because there's nothing to be ashamed about. And this is your story. And it also gives them the tools to understand their own context as they grow up. So I think with that in mind, my mum, which I still have today, um, made this little laminated, um, handmade, you know, very, very arts and crafts book. Um, and it was all about, it was called Natasha's story. And there was a picture of me. Um, from when I was two and that used to be a bedtime read one of my many 
you know, along with the cat, Henry the Caterpillar, it used to be a bedtime read. And so I always, my first memory I have is me with that book. I think I'm about three and a half. It's a real bit of a fuzzy um, memory, but we're in our London house. And you know, um, when you were at nursery, the teacher used to read the book with like looking over it in front so everyone could see all the pictures. I remember getting my mom to sit on the floor cross-legged and I was on the sofa and I had the book and I was reading her my book like the nursery school teachers would read the books to me. And that's my first memory. So I think I've always known that I was donor conceived or always known about our single parent situation because it was just, you know, a fundamental part of how I understood our family unit when I was younger. Amazing. Funnily enough, my daughter does that same thing. So she sits, she does carpet time, which is what they do at nursery. And she puts all her toys around and then she reads all the toys, the books in the way that those sc- the school teacher do. <laughs> something kids copy their school teacher. But I love that image. That's so nice. I've also made my daughter a book um, that she reads as well called My Family. Mm-hmm. And I, I fully agree with you. It's what I say to everybody like you have to lose any shame you might feel on it because there's no shame to be had and Mm -hmm. if you feel shame that's how a child may also feel whereas if you're proud of your story and your situation and you Mm -hmm. share that in that way um Mm -hmm. you know it seems like you're very confident about your story that's just how it is and I guess your mum's influenced that how she spoke to you about it Oh, definitely. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I think I'm really lucky in that respect, because I think back then, especially, you know, early 1990s, I don't think there was a lot of support groups or even tools or even kind of best practice going around about how to do that. So I'm, I'm really lucky, I think, that my mum had the know-how and the confidence and to, to do that. And it, it honestly, I think, set me up for such a good um, start, because I was never shy about explaining that I was a single parent family it wasn't this kind of unusual thing it was just well this is my world and the book would talk about Natasha's people these are Tasha's people and it wasn't you know it wasn't about labels or who was who it was about look at all these people who are here for you and love you and take you to the zoo on a Sunday and you know look at all these people who are at your birthday party and I think just children aren't born with the labels you know it's given to them so I think allowing kids to just know that they've got a lot of people there for them is is the main thing and funnily enough as I grew up because it came just such a normal practice like it was just my chat that I had my little chatty five-year-old self that my mom had to she she took me aside once and she said to me um because you know someone would be like oh where's your dad and I'd launch into this very graphic story about my mom's exploding ovaries and then we moved to London and then the and you know there was this I loved it it was a story that my story that I told and my mom took me aside and she said once she goes she had to basically explain the concept of privacy she goes privacy and secrecy are different things and you don't have to tell people if you don't want to you know you can keep things private but it's completely up to you what you want to do and I was like oh okay sure well (laughs) why wouldn't I like you know it was just this complete no-brainer um so yeah I learned about the the idea that I could choose to kind of say what I wanted I didn't have to give the full spiel every time but I never felt like I had to it always just was a story that I like to tell brilliant the other thing I wanted to say was that the biggest 
fear, I think, of a lot of the women I speak to who are considering solo parenthood is, will it be harmful to my child? Is it fair to my child? Am I being selfish to bring my child into the world and they won't have their father in their lives? Have you ever felt like that's been a disadvantage or have you ever felt like you wished there had been that person there? Honestly, not. I've always been curious about who my donor is, but I've never had, when I was little, I definitely wanted to do the more dad-like activities. So because my mom kept trying to get pregnant after me for a good, um, I think another eight years, and again, so many cycles and none of them were successful. And because of all these operations she was having, she couldn't pick me up and like twirl me around like I saw the dads do at uh, school pickup. And so it was the kind of more boisterous activities that I remember saying to my mum, I want to do that. Whereas my nan and papa, you know, they were a wee bit older. They wouldn't do those kind of boisterous activities either. Um, so that's, that's when I was wee, that's what I remember wanting was just s- someone to like chuck me around and do that kind of boisterous stuff. As I got older, I definitely felt not at the absence came from the lack of information about who my donor was. It wasn't, I, I wasn't craving a kind of nuclear family unit because my family, because then it wouldn't be my family, if that makes sense. Like my family were the people that I knew and loved and trusted. So the idea of like that changing, then it would know and adding another human into that dynamic just wouldn't be my family anymore. But as I got older, the curiosity definitely got stronger. The thing I think that I found the hardest as a teenager about the lack of a father figure was it was often conflated. So uh, I felt that the single parent families and um, donor conception in general were at the time in the press, it was all about the ethics of it. Is it ethical? Is it right? You know, thank, thankfully we've come a long way from there and we realized that a family is made up of just those who love each other. Like you don't need to have a family. You don't need to have all these, you know, jigsaw pieces that, our cookie cutter versions, you can just, a family unit can be made up of anything as long as there's love there. Um, but that wasn't the kind of, uh, the, the talking points on, you know, the Sunday programs at that time. And what always got conflated in my head was the idea that the frustration from my part was that I can be proud of coming from a single parent family. And that's, you know, absolutely something that I've always felt, but still be curious about my donor it didn't have to be this one or the other you know you you weren't reduced to this this kind of um false dichotomy of you know you can only be supporting single parent families if you're 100 percent and don't care who your donor is or you know if i did say actually i i am curious about my donor that it doesn't mean that i'm then saying that single parent families um or any family that's not you know your nuclear family is 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 damaging in any way um, so luckily my mom, my mom understood that. My mom completely was like so supportive of my curiosity. She was very um, just always, you know, understanding and listening and was always willing to kind of write to the HFEA or like write another letter. When I was younger, she used to say like, write a letter, write a letter. Um, this one I was like eight or nine. And I actually have one. I found one of, of me, my very bad handwriting and bad spelling, eight-year-old Natasha, writing to the HFEA 
to ask them to tell me more information about my donor that I still have this. It's quite sweet. Um, but she obviously never sent them off. But then it would be kind of out my system. I felt like I'd done something. And then I'd go back to watching Nickelodeon. You know, it was this real thing about managing the waves of, of a child's kind of curiosity and then feeling like you've done something and then being able to, to move on from it a little bit. But the other thing is, I know people who are donor conceived in my situation who are, who are not curious at all. You know, it's your child might not be curious about their donor um, and just, and, and none of that is a reflection on how good or bad your yeah. parenting's been. It's totally individual. Choice. Exactly. It's completely yeah. individual, yeah. completely. So I think um, that, I think it's a great thing that women who want, who know that they're going to be great mothers get a chance to, to be that and know that their, their, their children, their, their children will care about who raises them and that's their world and I think that it's just yeah important to to know that a nuclear family is no guarantee of happiness you know Um, and I think sometimes people assume that if you have all these pieces then then that guarantees some sort of you know happy happily ever after and it's just not not the case I think I think you've said two things there that I think are so important. So I think the first one, I love what you said. You can feel both those feelings at once. So you can be really comfortable with your family situation and still have a deep curiosity about who the donor is. That that then they they can be in parallel. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be one or the other. I think that's a really really useful point to remember. And then the second thing is I think what you said about your mum supporting your curiosity I think as a solo parent sometimes people have an anxiety thinking oh but why do they want to know aren't they satisfied with what we've got here etc and I think it's so important to share that people some people do have a curiosity and the more we can support with that curiosity mm-hmm. I think the better the relationship will be um, the better the situation will be so it's really interesting to hear you sharing that really useful information So I guess because of the circumstances, your mum was the first person who's ever done that. You did mention that you know other people. Have you got a network of people that you know that are donor conceived by a solo parent or or not? Um, So I'm part of this network called the Donor Conception. um, Well, so there's the Donor Conception Network, but then there's also the Donor Conception Registry, which who I found actually later in life. I did grow up quite isolated. I had not met anybody in my situation at all and that was also the struggle it, it wasn't kind of it was the lack of information and the lack of um being able to talk to somebody about it who could who could feel the same way I did or could understand that was a that was a bit of a struggle because the I remember meeting the second child in Scotland to be born by a by IVF by a solo mom and they were 12 years younger than me and I was like, and so I, I obviously became, we ended up, we, we often, when I was a young teenager, we had a lot of, in Edinburgh, it's where we lived, we had a lot of mums who had these gorgeous little two and three-year-olds come over, you know, once a month and we'd have tea and cakes and they were just, yeah, kind of similar to you. We like, you know, how did you find it? Did you get bullied at school? They'd kind of ask me questions that were really obviously weighing on them. And I got to play with a gorgeous little two-year-old, so I was fine. And I just got to say, no, nah, I was fine. No one, if anything, I got more attention because I was all over the front pages and I felt very special. And the kids were too young to, to know why I was on the front pages, the technicalness of it. Like I remember at one point thinking I was a robot 
because I didn't understand the medicine that well. And my mum being like, no, you're not a robot, you're a human. <laughs> but, the, but the school teachers were really supportive. And I remember the, head, the headmaster coming up to me uh, in the playground one day with the paper being like, look at you. And so if anything, the, you know, the support, um, it was always very supportive, but I did feel a lot of um, kind of pressure because I was the first that I knew. So I was like, just what I feel normal you know is it going to change all these kind of questions that I didn't have anyone else to bounce off so luckily now later on in life I've actually connected and um, with this donor conception registry most of them are people born pre-1991 who were not told they were donor conceived until later on in life and have found out through maybe not the most pleasant ways and are kind of grappling with that family change and also maybe potentially the curiosity they have now of, of, of someone that they would like to connect with. So it's a, I've ne- still in the group um, that I'm in, I'm still quite an anomaly because I'm somebody who was first, has always known they were donor conceived and also by a single parent. Um, I think there's also a lot of same sex um, couple children in, in the group as well. But um, yeah, no, even now, but so that's where the curiosity levels vary. Um, the people that I've met, some are really curious, some are curious, but not enough to act on it. And some are completely disengaged and they're not fussed. And that's, and all of those things are completely fine. And also I think it's important to know as well that the, the way that you feel about it isn't static. Like it's okay that they might be curious at some ages and then that kind of goes away because for me, the curiosity has always been there, but it wasn't always at the forefront of my mind, you know, as a teenager, I had exams, I had summer holidays, I had discos to get ready for, you know, all the Hi. other elements. Yeah, exactly. All the other elements came into it. So I think that's also being mindful that it's not a static thing either and it, and it can evolve and, and that's okay too. Amazing. And you talked about the fact that because you've got little information about the donor that makes you think maybe I'm even more curious because I haven't got any information. Was that, did your mum have to use an anonymous donor at that time? Yeah. So the way I understand it, she used the same donor's sperm for all, what, 11, 10 years of her across the cycles. So she always tried to temper my expectations and say, she said, I bought it all. That's what she said. She had bought all of the sperm, Tasha. I don't know. I don't know how many half um, siblings you might have because I used a lot of it. So I always, when I was wee, you know, being an only child, I was like, wow, what if I'm one of like loads? Because again, I think back then the American experience yeah. kind of filtered into the British context. And it's just so different. Like we have completely different laws, regulations. So I'm sure there was a film that came out that it was like this guy had like a hundred kids through through donor concession. And that stuff was harmful for, for back in the day for me anyway, just because no one else, that's the only information I had to go on. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that opened up more questions of, you know, why did they do it? All these things. But so my mom did, yeah, it was through an anonymous donor. She bought up a lot. <laughs> she kept it on ice. She used it <laughs> throughout her time. So when I was applying to the HFEA for information, my mom used to say, don't, please don't get your hopes up. I don't know how many half siblings you're going to have that are already registered. And so, and also I applied for the kind of the basic information that the private clinic at the time got about my donor. 
And um, I was 17, 16, 17 when I got it. Um, or, or I was at high school, the final year of high school. So I might have just turned 18, actually. Because I think that that's, there's a, a um, you can only apply for it after a certain age. So I remember getting the letter and seeing this information and just feeling so overjoyed because this, you know, big question mark in my head that I used to maybe put a lot of different, um, I used to like cut up magazines and try to like put a face together that might look like mine ended up looking like Johnny Depp or Brad Pitt a lot of the time (laughs) it wasn't the most accurate way but you know I just had nothing to go on and this little piece of paper made it real and it said that he was five seven and my family are also were very small I'm one of the tallest in my family and I'm five two so you know that that made sense they said that the thing that resonated me with the most though was the fact that so I was very into art and theater and still am which kind of baffled my family none nobody else was and it said that his interests were the arts and theater and at the time of his donation he was the director manager of a theater so the fact that you know I was old enough at that time to understand the difference between nature and nurture and I knew that you know that stuff's not passed down necessarily but it, it made it was just a lovely warm connection to make and if anything it whetted my appetite for to for more information it didn't it didn't soften it um I just now that I had a little something to go on it just made me even more curious and so have you done more then to try to find your donor yeah so over the years I mean like I said it's this stuff doesn't happen overnight um maybe for some people but I you know I did a undergrad then I did my master's I was in London working in politics which is very fast paced you know these things I ended up kind of doing these steps of the DNA websites was my first step and ended up doing those over the course of a few years because actually life gets in the way and you know the the potential to find out a lot or not at all you need to kind of brace yourself for either of those things so you need to be kind of emotionally prepared <laughs> and if you've just finished your thesis or if you you know you've got other life things on um I always wanted to make sure that you know I wasn't taking on too much so yeah I started off through 23andMe and then I went on to Ancestry UK and um I actually found loads of or well, loads uh four half siblings over those two websites who were older than me so what the interesting thing is is that the hfea letter that i got when i was 18 that said a bit about my donor and that i had four younger half siblings but because they were younger they were not yet registered so i couldn't know anything so we assumed that i must be the oldest because my mum, you know kind of the first person solo mom to be doing that stuff in scotland and, you know, it wasn't that common back then, even in London, to be a solo mom doing it. So we assumed that I was going to be probably the oldest. But now, finding out that my donor actually donated to clinics who were helping um, couples as well, heterosexual couples, um, was really interesting. So now I'm one of nine. I've gone from being an only child wow. to now one minimum of, of nine uh, ha- half-siblings, all through donor conception. Right. From what I can understand, none directly through my donor right um so yeah it's interesting that the donor can the i think the dna thing the 23 me thing is such an amazing revolution to happen for the generation now just yeah. because my port of call to find out more information 
was begging my mum to hire a private detective because I'd watched too much Veronica Mars, which was about this like girl boss detective. And I was convinced that on that little information, we could find something. Right. Um, so the fact that it's much more accessible and also the fact that, you know, you don't have to find your donor on that website to mm. find a relative of the donor. It can be anybody, cousin, can be quite distant. So in terms of, I think a piece of advice I would give to, to, to parents um, whose kids are curious is that you can't shut it down because yeah. there's these avenues now that are completely out with your control. And if anything, it's just really good to have somebody there to support you. Cause I remember my mom saying, don't open any of those that we both did a 23 me for Christmas. I got it for us. And she goes, don't open your results until we can do it together. Like let's do it together. Right. And did I listen? No, I was on <laughs> holiday when I got the results through. I was in Tunisia actually on, for work. Right. And um, I opened it up and it said, you know, my mom 50%. And then it said my half sister uh, and the percentage of, of 25 or something percent half sister. Wow. Um, and I was just ecstatic. I remember like squealing in this hotel room and immediately calling my mom to tell her. The first thing she said was, you're meant to wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think so. That's just, she's again, been really supportive through all of that stuff as well. Um, but she's also really helped me make sure that I'm um, mindful that not everyone was in my situation. You know, I was, I, I honestly, I hadn't realized until I'd started moving in these circles more of donor conceived people who are rough, who are about my age, that a lot of people weren't told the truth. And a lot of people were kind of kept um, in the dark. And the amount of trust that needs to be rebuilt, the amount of relationships that might not be the same again, is, is really upsetting. And um, I think what I'm, mindful of when I'm connecting with people online my half siblings is that they might not know that they're donor conceived and I don't want to be the bearer of news unexpected and so I always engage with them in a really kind of vague way I say oh I notice we're related I'm that's great news for for me I've I've been looking for relatives for quite a while I've got quite an unusual family story and I link to you know my BBC piece or a Guardian piece or something that it's not they can click on if they want to but it's not kind of all there on the page for them yeah um and I think yeah that's that's something that I actually hadn't anticipated um growing up is that there would be a people who didn't have the confidence the tools even the knowledge um to to kind of engage in the way that I was willing to engage and I think that's one of the advantages of the solo parent situation because you've got to explain it somehow. So I, I don't, I doubt there's many people who grew up in a solo parent family that didn't know an element of the truth at least. Um, but I yes. think the way that you share that story and how you talk about it, like you said, it definitely helps give the confidence to really own that, um, which it sounds like you really do. So you then found a half sibling. So have you made the connection with her? How's that gone? Yeah, so I actually uh, connected with Charlotte gosh, three years ago now, three, maybe three and a half years ago. Um, oh, actually closer to four now because, so as chance would have it, so connected with her, luckily she knew she was donor conceived, but she wasn't on the website to actually find anyone. It was more of a, 
kind of an interest in her genetics. And she was living in LA and I was actually going to California that summer. So we connected in the April and I was going over for a holiday anyway in the July. And so I met my half sister in a fancy LA coffee shop. As you do. And <laughs> as you do, you know, I was like, this is real life. This is mad. Amazing. And um, we hit it off. It was like two friends kind of who hadn't seen each other for a really long time. And um, we had just finished reading the same book, which was really weird. Wow. We didn't look at that much like. I think we both have brown hair. That's kind of where it begins and ends, I think. I think I look so much like my mum, right. which was actually, that was always an issue when I was younger. I remember parent-teacher conferences, they used, the parents, the teachers rather used to say, you look so much like your mum, you're the spitting image of your mum. And I used to resent it. Obviously, I'd never said anything, but it mm. used to really irk me, especially as a teenager at the time, because it meant, in my head, it meant I had nothing to go on, mm. no clue to, to see what my donor looked like. So yeah, I'm the spitting, spitting image of my mum. But um, so yeah, so we, we had, you know, we were there for three and a bit hours, chatted away about everything, about our interests, about what we're doing in our lives, um, about our family set up, everything. And we kept in touch. And then she uh, was obviously living in LA. So when she came over to the UK, she came over once a year because um, they don't have great um, annual leave in America. She only yeah. got a week every year. And she used to, I used to meet up with her. So I met up with her on her birthday. At the time I was working in the House of Commons. So I gave her a tour of the House of Commons. And I felt like look at me, I'm giving my like half big sister a tour of the House of Commons. Um, and the year after that, we met again um, for brunch. And I literally Skyped her a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're just, yeah, we get on, we have a lot in common, which is really interesting in terms of like, we're both into politics, the type of um, like hobbies. And I think that was the real connecting factor for us. And now I just feel like I've just got this really cool friend. Like she's, she's obviously my half sister, but I really, I, I feel very lucky to have met her because she's so cool. She's so lovely and warm and engaging. And she's my half-sister. I'm like, Amazing. look at that. Oh, yeah. that's such a nice story. What is your view on, there's a, there's a whole school of thought about we could potentially find, like I could try to find um, half-siblings for my daughter now. Mm -hmm. She's obviously too young to tell me whether she wants to do that. She doesn't, she won't understand it properly. But I could still do that or I could wait until she's old enough to say whether that's something she's interested in. Have you got a view on if there's a, how you would handle that? Mm, I think, yeah, it is a tricky one. I think I would probably just the idea that you would find something like, it's almost like you've done the, the harder piece of work on your daughter's behalf, you know, doing mm. the, the, the research and doing the, the, the searching. Mm. But then if you find something and then don't tell her mm. for however many years until she's curious, I think I, I, I'm, I might, my instinct is to hold off until she starts prompting. Right. Um, I mean, com I completely get if you would want to know for yourself and then, so you can then, you know, figure out how to then, manage expectations or to, to contextualize it. Cause I remember meeting a couple at the donor conception network, a, a same sex couple who found out that their daughter's half, their child's half sibling was actually quite close by and they weren't sure whether to, you know, make that connection now. And so they could bond as they were children or, mm. so I think honestly, there's no right or wrong mm. answer because it's about what you think is best for your daughter. 
and you're the best person to, to know that. See, that would be our situation because I use Manchester Fertility Clinic. They have their own sperm bank. So mm. the likelihood is that most of the other people that used it live in the northwest of England. If you use one of the other clinics, you could have you could use any sperm bank, European, you know, American, and mm. therefore you might have half siblings, but they're likely to be scattered around the world. Whereas with mine, the likelihood is they will be in a relatively close proximity and I just thought a bit like you just described you know meeting your half sister I was thinking oh because my daughter will be an only child it would be so uh -huh. nice for her to have that but then I'm deciding on her behalf so uh, it's a tricky one isn't it it is it is really tricky and especially when kids are younger mm. because I can say in hindsight now I have the I'm confident and happy in my own life yeah that if the other half siblings that I connect with if they don't want to engage with me, that is obviously not what I ideally would like, but it's something that, you know, you move with and you, you understand and you move on. I wonder uh, at a particularly young age, if that sense of rejection, I don't know how that would feel at a younger age yeah. when, when you're not, especially post, post teenage years. I think I was so much more able to see myself as a fully formed person with a fully formed life very happy doing what I want to do. And if I found my donor, if I found half siblings, that's an, that's an add-on. And that's something I desperately did want and was, you know, making active measures to do. But I felt that if I had connected in when I was younger and maybe something happened that was completely out with my control, you know, for instance, the, the, the half siblings, parents, something that they weren't comfortable with or, or they actually had another child. So the half sibling had a, uh, a sibling in their family unit. Just these things that I don't know how crushed I would be, especially if you're the only child. Yeah. That's the only thing. But again, it's so, this is the thing. There is no right or wrong. Uh, there is no right or wrong. There is no best practice here because we're all just kind of doing our best True. and kind of going with our, um, that mindset of like, like you said, like open and honest is absolutely the best way. But I, my mom, at one point did put her foot down when I was like, okay, more, more, <laughs> let's do the um, private detective. Let's do this. Let's do that. I had my exams, um, my uh, equivalent of GCSEs at the time coming up and she kind of put her foot down and was like, nope, we're not doing this right now. You've actually got this to concentrate on, you know? And at the time I was heartbroken. I felt like my mom was like actively, going against what would the one thing that would have kind of made me happy and in hindsight I'm really glad that she put those boundaries up as a way to protect me and to kind of also you know manage it's just such an overwhelming amount of, of emotions to process that you know doing it in those kind of bite-sized pieces. I think one of the advantages that I have is um, because so many more people are doing it now, my daughter has got quite a lot of friends a similar age who are in exactly the same position. And oh. so when we meet up with them the first time, I was like, we're going to meet them and they've not got daddies either. And she said, they've not got daddies. And, um, and then they, they sort of, they like the fact, I think, that they're all in the same situation. So I think if sometimes kids don't want to feel different, do they? Actually, mm -hmm. what we're saying is you quite embraced having a different story I think again it probably just depends on your personality but mm -hmm. at least they will have 
friendships who are in exactly the same situation. So they'll have someone to talk to that mm -hmm. specific thing about that really understands what mm -hmm. they're, they're in the same situation. So I think that's one of the benefits of so many more people having done this now. Definitely. That, that would be lovely. If I had had that type of um, support system, that would have been amazing because I still get from the, because I did, you know, a couple of these things on the BBC and the Guardian, I think if you Google like sperm donor UK, like I, I'm not sure if mine just pops up quite often, yeah. but I often do get even for years now, consistently, maybe twice a month, people who have who Google my name because they found out their donor conceived and they Google, they don't Google my name, sorry, they Google that, my name pops up, they find me, they email me. And I always, always make a point of replying and giving, you know, points of reference and information because I just thought if I had had someone mm. to reach out to, could have given me some guidance, I, that would have meant the world. So I think that's lovely that your, your daughter has that. And it's interesting that she says daddy because that was something that when I was younger, I would say dad, father, daddy. And as I, as I, as a teenager, kind of stepped away from that phrase because it was too emotive for me. It wasn't like I had been abandoned by a dad. You know, it wasn't that he, he, in my head, I did that separation of he didn't raise me. He doesn't know who I am, which was obviously very upsetting to, to know that fact. Um, it's not that he doesn't want to know who I am. He, he's a donor. Like I, I, I changed the language, which gave me a feel a bit more agency because at the time, again, it was all can families be families without fathers? I went on that show segment. The BBC did it on a Sunday. Can families be families without fathers? I was interrailing at the time. I was 19, interrailing. And I was in a hostel in Italy, in their broom cupboard, on Skype, discussing can families be families without wow. fathers? Against um, uh, Peter Hitchens and uh, an MP at the time. Wow. And I was the one person being like, uh, yes, hello, yes, we can, and yes, we are, and we're very you happy. You can't argue against me because it's my actual life. Exactly. It's not just a theory. I'm, I'm living it. Uh-huh, exactly. And, um, and so the fathers and dads were used, that was the, the, the term often used, whereas now I think donors and, and different, different words are, are definitely being used more often now, I think. Yeah, language, I think, is a really interesting one because I think it's so there's so many different views on it. So I use donor. Um, so my daughter knows that she has a donor and I say she doesn't have a daddy. She has a donor. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm hearing more and more from people is that it's my donor and then she can decide what it is. And I think that's what you said. You sort of decided that it's your donor. And I, I think it's very similar to whether you're curious or not. It's just an individual thing. What mm -hmm. do you want to refer to that person as? So I use donor to refer to the person. Um, I think she's a bit young to understand really what a donor yeah. is, but she, what she can do is see that other people have daddies and yeah. she hasn't got one, but what she does a little bit like you were describing, she just reels off who she has got. So she's like, I've got a mummy, a granny, a granddad, a Luna, the dog and uncle Dan. And then she starts listing the whole, the whole family. But I think that's lovely because she knows who she has got. Mm -hmm. rather than like focusing on who anyone that you know we don't focus on someone missing we focus on everything that is there exactly brilliant so have you got any words of advice for anyone who is considering this as a path to parenthood is there any wise words that you can share about it I mean I think 
my mom would definitely be better placed to kind of give the the just keep going like you can do this believe in yourself stuff because I mean it baffles me now she's younger than I was she's two years younger than I was when she was told she would not be able to have children the idea that you know that choice in life was taken away from her she lost that agency and the idea she's like I'm gonna still do it I don't care what the institutions say I don't I mean the the idea the NHS like she's still got this letter typed up by an NHS doctor a fertility doctor that refused her treatment because of a her social circumstances nothing to do with her medical needs Mm. which was an obvious need Um, and the fact that she said you know screw you all I'm I know I'm going to be a great mum I'm going to do it um I think basically backing yourself like really having that confidence in yourself knowing that you are going to love that child and raise that child and that that child's going to be happy because you like growing up in a loving family is like the just the, the most that is the thing that makes a family in my opinion and it doesn't I think I can't imagine what it must be like to go through cycles that don't happen time and time again. Like my mum, you know, really suffered a good bit. Um, I think she had a few miscarriages, you know, that I can't imagine that side of it in terms of the process of just kind of keep going, keep pushing through next cycle, saving up for another cycle. Um, And at the time, obviously she wasn't able to adopt, which is the ironic thing. She was a social worker, but because she wasn't married, she was unable to adopt. So that was not an avenue to, to use either. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just kept going. And once she had done it, the way she kind of puts it to me, she was like, once I had you, I had fought so hard to have you that no one could tell me that I wasn't going to raise you well. No one could tell me that you weren't going to be loved or you were going to grow up for once because you weren't. Because look at all the, the, the kind of barriers I overcame to have you. Like she just, that kind of just um, booed her up with so much kind of self-belief and confidence. And she just knew she was going to give everything she could and be the best mom that she could. And we've got, you know, a really great, strong relationship. We're both very, like I'm very much my mom's daughter, both <laughs> very um, independent and strong-willed and, you know, um, but I think that's the main thing is kind of like believing in yourself is I think the key thing. Did your mum ever meet anyone? Did, did, was there anyone introduced into the family at all? So not, not really. She, I knew she'd had partners. When I was um, younger, I mean, t- shows you, uh, maybe I was just a very naive seven-year-old. Like, <laughs> I'd met pe- people. Um, she was very into politics at the time, so well, still is. But so often I would never meet a person in isolation. It would always be in, you know, we were, she was a big... Um, support of the Labour Party so it would be you know canvassing or it would be a rally or you know so um back then I just remember again meeting people um she did have partners when I was younger but she kept them very separate because she was like I'm Natasha's parent I don't expect you to be to take on this responsibility that's my child my responsibility and she kept those very separate I did meet her longtime partner when I was a teenager he lived in London and um, so they would often, you know, go um, to York or they would meet somewhere, which suited me great because then I got I had a free house and I'd have my <laughs> friends over, you know, it always, but at that point I would, I was old enough to, I never expected any of her partners to be any figure in my life because she wouldn't have let them for, for a start. She'd be like, excuse me, this is my child. Yeah. And also 
because there was that arm's length thing and they had their own lives and families um that it just yeah it just it never kind of gelled that way and there was never an expectation for it too i've I've heard some children sort of tell their mum, you know go and meet someone i want you to meet a boyfriend and and bring them in um but again i suppose very individual whether you feel like that or or that might be a nice idea but then the reality might not you might be like actually no I want you back to myself again I don't I don't like this situation so sometimes that might be a bit of a fantasy for people maybe oh yeah especially as an only child I don't know about your wee girl but like I want when I was younger I wanted all my mom's attention I wasn't sharing that I remember again as a teenager stroppy little 13 year old if he used to call during EastEnders, I'd be fuming. I'd be like, <laughs> EastEnders is on, what are you doing? Like, so, so I think that like, yeah, I think the idea of having that like family unit thing makes sense. But actually, you know, having another adult telling you what to do in your own house, like having that shift of family dynamic, I don't know actually how open people would be to that part of it. So true. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a great chat. So good to get your insights. Um, I think so many people will find uh, this so valuable. So thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really like glad. It's my first ever podcast. So I'm really chuffed oh. on yours. <laughs> Amazing. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, it'd mean a lot to me if you'd take a few minutes to rate, review and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more of what's on offer at The Stork and I, head over to my website, thestalkandi.com or follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi with underscores between the words. You can hear more about the coaching I offer as well as hear from donor-conceived adults, industry experts and the opportunity to meet and become a part of the Solo Motherhood community.